0: Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, once considered the gold standard of public health, finds itself at a crossroads. Trust in the CDC plummeted during the height of the pandemic. This is what Dr. Mandy Cohen faces as she takes the helm of the agency. First on her long list of goals, rebuilding credibility lost because of some CDC missteps during the pandemic.
1: Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Today, I'm here with my two co-hosts, Artie Vierkamp. Hello. And Phil Rocco. Hiya. And the three of us are going to be discussing Mandy Cohen, who is President Biden's newly appointed director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who was just sworn in starting her new job a couple of weeks ago in early July. Two years into the Biden administration, here we are again with yet another big staffing shakeup. We're you know, just two months out from the end of the COVID public health emergency and as we've been talking about in our ongoing coverage of Rochelle Bolensky, former CDC director's departure, you know, many of the most visible faces of the Biden pandemic response are already out of the White House or have been recently cycled out of their roles or into new roles. For example, you know, you have Ashish Jha, who his last day was in mid-June, and he was the former COVID czar. You had Jeff Science, who was the COVID czar before <laughs> Ashish Jha, who left the administration, went into the private sector ran the search committee for the new chief of staff and then became the new chief of staff. So, you know, the the face of the pandemic response has completely shifted. And I'm going to do my best to kind of do a quick COVID overview, but that's basically impossible right now. Um, Testing data is basically invisible, and we've seen another round of declaring the pandemic over prematurely as ongoing normalization of COVID continues. But COVID is still a problem. And as I've mentioned in the past, wastewater data in the U.S. is unreliable. There's not enough coverage. But the limited data that we do have show some worrying upticks in wastewater reporting. COVID is now increasing in every region of the United States for the first time in months. The national average has increased for uh, two, maybe three weeks straight at this point by the time this is out. Meanwhile, the CDC is producing funding to states for child vaccination programs. The so-called Medicaid unwinding is proceeding at quite a pace. Based on the most current data from 33 states in the District of Columbia, at least 3.1 million enrollees have been disenrolled as of July 20th, 2023. And across the states with available data, 74% of people have been disenrolled for procedural reasons over fucking paperwork due to administrative burdens. Fuck. And the overall rates, of course, vary from state to state. But I just want to highlight one glaring example. New Mexico, 98 percent of people who have been disenrolled from Medicaid so far have been disenrolled for procedural reasons. Ninety eight percent. And so this is the covid landscape that Mandy Cohen is stepping into (laughs) as new CDC director. So we've done a lot of digging into her past work, her statements, and her tenure as North Carolina State Health Secretary. And today, we're going to talk about who Mandy Cohen is, why she may have been former COVID czar and current chief of staff, Jeff Zions's top pick for the job, and what her appointment to this role tells us about the COVID response that we can expect moving forward.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, you know, it's never a good sign when the Biden administration makes an announcement and Lena Wen, you know, pops out of the woodwork to write a piece called Biden's new CDC director is the right person to lead the agency. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Not
3: bitter at all. She's the right person. I'm very happy for her.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But yeah, I think this is something we've been working on for a while, as B mentioned. This is a really interesting uh, move as we're going to talk about. There's a lot of kind of things to unpack here. And as B is saying, you know, we're going to be talking about sort of who is Mandy Cohen. But also, I think before we get into that, I think it's fair to start with what we think this is staffing change means mm-hmm. and sort of why Mandy Cohen, because I think, you know, to answer that, obviously, we'll have to look into her past and, uh, you know, who, sh- who she is and who she's been politically aligned with anyway. But I think we can start with some general theories, mm-hmm. right? Um, the first big thing that I would say is that my general thesis for what we're going to be talking about today is that the reason that Mandy Cohen was the pick for the Biden administration is that the administration wants to make the CDC disappear.
3: Mm-hmm. Ooh. Mm. Um, yeah. That's, that mm-hmm.
2: sounds like a reasonable take. You know, I think it's a similar playbook as what we saw with when Ashish Jaw was brought in to, you know, be the COVID czar, but maybe a little bit more sophisticated than mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, unlike Jaw, Cohen is to most people outside of North Carolina anyway, an unknown quantity, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, if Ashish Jaw was coming in as COVID response coordinator, tasked with sort of soothing people's anxieties about the pandemic because he had been, uh, you know, quote unquote, America's TV doctor or, or whatever it was, that stat published about him like a year prior to him joining the administration. Um, the Cohen pick is similar. I think that they want the CDC to appear boring again. Uh, they want someone who's going to come in and it seems not really talk about the pandemic all that much. Uh, someone for whom it's hard to pinpoint. <laughs> exactly what you maybe don't trust about her (laughs) um and i think that actually kind of gets the point of the problem that they maybe think that they're solving actually which is that the extent that they want her in the public view seems to me at least to be so far about orienting the sort of you know message about why she's coming in as fixing what they think was the problem with walensky yes or the problem absolutely um, which was about, you know, quote unquote, trust in the CDC <laughs> in general.
3: Blandly uh, speaking, uh, part would you say that that's sort of like very generically partisanship? <laughs>
2: oh, yeah, you for know, sure. Fill
3: in the blank. You know, I mean, I think that's all, all of the things that I've sort of read in the kind of framing of her hiring is like, well, she led this. You know, Medicaid agency in North Carolina, and um, you know everybody expected Republicans to like—I don't know—be like filing their teeth down to (laughs) ingest her, Uh, and and lo and behold, like Richard Burr and you know other Republicans, like you know, can can speak on her behalf. So there's this claim that she somehow healed a rift (laughs) in North Carolina, which I really want to investigate. I like I tried to, to to look more at this but I already I I gather you've done more of the um investigative research here but it was like even that I'm like w- uh, really really um but but I think that that's one can understand I think that this is the framing that they have about the sort of organizational problems at the CDC.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, she is supposed to. I think that. I think the goal. This is what I mean by make the CDC disappear. I think the goal is to come in. Even if you look at some of the early, you know, press stuff that she's doing, like her first press appearance, is all about restoring trust in the CDC, this agency that has been looked at for so long now as this like overly politicized agency. And here is Mandy Cohen. Whatever that means. Right, whatever that means, because obviously, you know, it's uh, health and public health is going to be political. No matter like no matter what you do, Uh, but, you know, bringing her in and then here's this person who's basically, you know, cut from the cloth, I think, very directly of like 2010s third way style Mm -hmm. um, reach across the aisle Obama ism. Yeah. Yeah. and in fact, you know, if you look at that as, quote unquote, the trust in public health as though trust is the problem with the CDC and not what the CDC has done, what the Biden administration did in terms of its pandemic response, etc., as being a big problem, right? If you look at restoring trust to the agency as the problem, then her pick begins to make even more sense because even just a month before Biden named her as his pick for the next CDC director, she gave this commencement speech at Guilford College where the theme was very literally trust. Here's the main takeaway quote, uh, change happens at the pace of trust. Is the is like the the big kind of takeaway? I'm sorry. Line from her commencement speech. the change. B- okay,
1: happens at the pace. Among whom?
3: <laughs> but in what? Like this is. I love
2: trusting who just, to do what.
3: <laughs> I mean, trusting who to. But I just love this is. If 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 you wanted somebody, I just saw somebody the other day like wearing an Accenture t uh, t-shirt from like <laughs> consultants weekend. <laughs> so you know, it's like, if you wanted a slogan for that t-shirt, you could not- change happens at the pace of trust is like, that's like, they have that in Michael Clayton. That's like a line in Michael Clayton, like right. that the firm has in like their commercial. Like and, that's amazing. And,
2: and this is, I think actually this, this perfectly. Cause for, well, oh, first of all, the last thing to say about that um, commencement speech is It's hard not to read that line and the fact that the entire I mean, literally, I'm not exaggerating. The entire speech is the theme is trust. Right. So it's hard not to read that speech as literally a job interview or something. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. She's putting herself out there. um, You know, it's a month before the announcement was made. I'm sure this is the conversation that she's having. These are the lines that she's like she's probably saying change happens at the pace of trust. To, you know, Jeff Zients or whoever is interviewing her for this position, which reportedly it was not close or not reportedly, allegedly, according to some information that we've gotten, uh, it wasn't close. Like she's the pick that they picked. And this kind of leads us to the first thing that you need to know about Mandy Cohen, which is, let's say, her general vibe is extremely almost management consultant. Oh, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, Um, that's
3: yeah, that's right.
2: Her whole leadership style, if you will, is very, you know, slide deck or rather elaborate PowerPoint presentation with weird neologisms thrown in, very Mm -hmm. management consultant. And so it will not surprise you to learn Cohen has been for a long time acknowledged as having personal affinity with Jeff Zients, Mm -hmm. which I think is how she got the job. But, you know, don't just take my word for it. Let me just read from The New York Times, um, June 16th. Dr. Cohen was said to be the top candidate on a sizable list of names that administration officials whittled down in recent weeks. She was the top choice of Jeff Zients, the White House chief of staff in the Biden administration's former COVID response coordinator, according to one person familiar with the search process.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's also really another very, very obvious sign sort of, of how much power Zients has right now as chief of staff. I mean, there was reporting when... I think it was Dan Diamond at Washington Post who even like broke that Mandy Cohen was going to mm-hmm. be the nominee. There were people in CDC who gave anonymous comment to reporters saying, "Really? Her? Like she doesn't. Yeah, she has like some expertise within, you know, public health agencies and she has some expertise as a doctor and with infectious diseases, but like People were kind of confused, apparently, internally within the CDC, saying that, you know, she really doesn't have the kind of like public health credentials that former heads have had, saying that even she is like less qualified than Robert Redfield, who was the CDC director under Trump, like who is known worldwide for, you know, HIV vaccine scams and conspiracies in the 90s. So like. I think it's also really, this is a really important reflection, not just the sort of what the Biden administration hopes to do with the CDC, but also what Zion's power is right now in terms of his yeah. his uh, influence within the executive branch and how that's shaping not just the COVID response, but these very high level decisions about, you know, what these agencies are sort of going to seek to do and what their messaging is going to be um, probably over the next two years or moving forward.
2: And I think, you know, to add on to what you're saying, we're going to go through kind of relatively chronologically some of the main beats of uh, her recent career, I would say. But the big takeaway that I can just say before we sort of get into that, because I think it's kind of useful to know going into the list of what she has been doing, her career Like, yes, she was the face of North Carolina's pandemic response in 2020 and 2021, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, she has a public health degree. However, everything else about her career is way more, um, what I've been saying is the shorthand internally here at the death panel is way more CMS than CDC. And by that, I mean, she's way more of a Centers for Medicare and Medicaid person, uh, which, in fact, she worked at CMS during the Obama administration in a quite high Position, but also like much of the rest of her career has been a lot of it just around health systems and health payers and and stuff like that. The the like more Medicare and Medicaid and private insurance questions side of mm. things, and not so much on public health. So that was that's kind of like the first you know eyebrow raising thing to me about this decision, and it sounds like by what you're saying, be to a bunch of uh, other people too, maybe even internally. So. The reason I say this is basically the thing I think what this should probably signal to really anyone who's interested in addressing COVID as a political question, the thing that this should bring immediately to mind is this is not someone who we should wait to see how she disappoints us, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, This is someone who should not necessarily be just given the benefit of the doubt. Her being handpicked by Jeff Science is in itself a huge red flag.
3: Well, and also I think it's like, I guess the question that uh, haunts my brain when I look at the, you know, the sort of CV and everything is just like, you know, there's a story, I guess, to be told about why they picked her, but there's also a story to be told about how this became the kind of person Mm. of which there are, you know, She happens to have certain characteristics that fit their needs at the moment. But like the broader worldview, I think, you know, judging from what I can tell is very consistent with, I think, if you were to look through a lot of the top strata of the bureaucracy and it's you know so like whatever her her experience is like in many ways elite academic and then government but the it rather than like working for say like Accenture, Booz Allen Hamilton or something like that but the but the reality is i think one there is this like elite stratum of institutions that you come to these top positions from, but also like the, the ideology of management consultancy has like very much infiltrated academia and, uh, you know, even the higher echelons of government yeah. thinking to begin with. So that like the import, I think that's kind of going to be most interesting is her, her work. And we can get to this in the world of uh, like accountable care organizations and the souped up version of managed care that now exists mm-hmm. and public health, because I think that's an interaction that's been, you know, germinating for a long time, generally speaking. And I'm curious to see what, you know, that is sort of brought to the CDC. But like, I guess one reason to, to focus on her Beyond just like CDC being an important institution, it's just like, what does this tell us about the current personnel of the capitalist state, generally speaking, right? That's because we're never really interested in the CDC, particularly. It is always as part of a larger configuration, um, which is the way that I think we need to people who are most confused about why the CDC was doing what it was doing. I, I think don't have that perspective. And I think once you see it as part of a complex of things, things become a little bit clearer.
1: Well, I think part of what is really going on here, too, is that there's been a, a high level decision made to treat the CDC both as the CDC and also as a kind of press office of some kind. Oh, yeah. yes. Um,
3: yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. happening like I, I, w- I would imagine if you tracked like the amount of time and, and resources people devoted to the press office mm-hmm. side of things across government, they're like as as whatever. <laughs> it's like all kinds of other responsibilities get abandoned. They just there's more investment in that. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and really what this kind of reads as to me is a real brand building exercise for the CDC. You know, part of I think what has struck me the most from the work that we've done recently, looking back at Rochelle's time as CDC director, you know, Walensky kept mentioning a couple things that have just really stuck in my head. The more I dug into Mandy Cohen's background and her work, especially in North Carolina, where she kept saying things like, uh, you know, beyond the trust stuff, Walensky was like, you know, we've got, you know, 50, 100,000 web pages, right? Like all these things say different things. The website is a mess. We weren't ever intending for we the public to read it. We data by yeah. You know, like, you know, these kinds of ideas about like, OK, well, is the sort of trust problem being conceptualized is fundamentally like the fact that they're seeing the CDC as an institution having made Um, A shift that it was not prepared for from a private institution, almost that was like reflexive of the government and of professionals and not really used by the public into a kind of public facing press, you know, modal entry point for the administration's agenda.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think two things about this in general that I would say, uh, one is that it's important just to note, because I think I just left it kind of, you know, dangling out there as implied the trust discourse, the, the if, if, for example, we're, if we're taking them at their word, basically, and the problem they w- want to solve with this pick is quote unquote, trust, then what they're actually talking about is the whole through line that happened during basically Walensky's entire tenure as the CDC director, where you got the sense, and in fact, the you know Biden administration officials essentially said uh, in so many words, The guidance coming out of the CDC was good guidance, but the communication was poor and that was the problem. And so that's obviously an issue considering, as we know, the guidance was also (laughs) the problem and the whole approach, whether it was, you know something influenced from without the CDC right um coming you know from outside of the CDC in or whether that you know whatever the whole feedback loop basically between the CDC and the rest of the administration and the the problems that that created and how disastrous the overall response has ended up being so far under Biden um you know so that that's that's just one thing to note the other thing to note just number 2 um just to think about maybe uh as we start to get into This sort of biography, my sort of book report on Mandy Cohen, as it were, kind of reflecting on something that Phil said a moment ago about how sort of hybridized general academic discourse has become with management consulting Mm -hmm. speak and the priorities of that class and the priorities of those positions, basically, you know, I think one of the things that is interesting about this whole situation and about evaluating Mandy Cohen as sort of a figure is yeah, she's been in public service employed by public institutions for most of her life although now, you know, starting in 2022, she became a, a healthcare executive. Um so that's new, but the the thing that I think this brings to mind just in terms of the whole approach, the way that people talk about things, the way that the way that even Cohen talks about, you know, basic public health uh things like the social determinants of health, which she does bring up quite frequently. Um these things bring to mind how you know maybe it's not so much this is going to sound really obtuse I'm very sorry whether it's uh, appropriate to think of these of this thing anymore as a revolving door or more as a zoetrope you know Mm -hmm. it's just like they're merged Mm -hmm. so with all that said who is Cohen who is Mandy Cohen Uh, I'm going to give a brief summary um, and sort of use it as a launch pad to go into um, some specific parts of her career so mandy cohen as we've kind of been talking around is someone who has degrees in both medicine and in public health um, so she has a medical degree from yale and a public health degree from harvard she is someone who's been in the sort of obama biden extended universe of supporting characters for a while now um, she co-founded a group that was called uh, doctors for obama in 2008 which is now called Doctors for America. Um, she co-founded that alongside Vivek Murthy, the current Surgeon General of the United States, who many listeners may know as the guy currently using his position to basically sell a bootstraps vision of combating loneliness mm-hmm. um, and his own book on loneliness. Um,
1: it's such a fucking social club, this administration.
2: Yeah, um... Starting in 2013, she worked in the Obama administration at CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, And while there aren't a lot of particularly detailed accounts of her time there, um, I'll just say in Biden's speech announcing that she was the pick for a CDC director. He said of this time that, quote, Dr. Cohen was involved in many aspects of the Affordable Care Act policy development and implementation, including the expansion of coverage, insurance protections and new provider payment models, unquote. So, again, as I'm saying, someone who's done way more work on payer stuff, on like health insurance mm-hmm. and health, you know, health systems stuff rather than on, you know, public health, Um Then from 2017 to 2021 um, she was the secretary of the north carolina department of health and human services which um, i'll come back to in a second and in 2022 she became the executive vice president and ceo of Alidaid care solutions Um, so she now checks that box of former executive um, that you can imagine probably looked pretty promising to someone like jeff science But so let's dial back. I think the thing that I want to look at first, though, is her time in uh, North Carolina as that state's health secretary. She was there from 2017 to 2021. And so she actually spent more time in that role working on sort of non-pandemic stuff. Like She she spent more time in that role pre-pandemic than she did during the first two years um, of the pandemic while she was the face. And
3: it seems like the big thing that um, she is cited as um, like as an accomplishment is persuading Republicans to get on board with Medicaid expansion. But the evidence on that is actually kind of dubious, especially given that the state hasn't yet implemented uh, Medicaid expansion and that really the change in the paradigm came with a, a very different lobbying strategy that focused on like local chambers of commerce and only in like the last year or so. So like I'm. Like, and and her role in it, I don't know, did you get any, like, that seems to be what people cite as one of her major accomplishments. But then, like, exactly what she did to make that happen seems like it's just, i it's a black box.
2: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, for context, you know, North Carolina is, as Phil's saying, is, you know, one of the several states that still has not expanded its Medicaid coverage under the, you know, new provisions that were made possible in the ACA, right, under Obamacare. Um, they are now, you know, in the process of finally implementing that. But yeah, as you're saying, Phil, you know, there's a lot of discussion. There's even like, I remember there's a, there's a, like a stat news article about Mandy Cohen's pick as CDC director. And they're basically saying like, oh, she has this superpower, which is talking to Republicans or like being able to work with Republicans. And the thing that all these places do cite, yeah, is that she played this role in basically convincing republicans to come along with medicaid expansion in the state of north carolina because for context basically uh north carolina is a state where the governor is a democrat currently and the legislature is republican and so even though the democratic governor you know wants to expand medicaid and has wanted to for a long time it wasn't something that was you know something that they could just do unilaterally like the state legislature has to uh, actually move that forward so I think you know as you're saying Phil it's unclear how much she was involved actually in moving the needle on that although she does widely get credited for it so the best I can say is I don't totally know what I do know though is that a lot of actually what she was doing before the pandemic in that role from like 2017 into, you know, let's say the very beginning of 2020, maybe, um, was certainly advocating for Medicaid expansion. But also on top of that, I would say essentially shepherding North Carolina's Medicaid program to more heavily rely on A managed care model, Mm. by which I mean, uh, by way of translation, I suppose, opening up state the state's Medicaid market uh, to more heavily rely on private insurance companies. Um, Again, don't just take my word for it. Here is how Raleigh magazine, uh, which is a magazine for the city of Raleigh, North Carolina, summed it up, uh, quote, Cohen is well-respected on both sides of the aisle, navigating a rocky divide between Democratic Governor Cooper, who wants to expand Medicaid under the ACA, and the Republican-majority state legislature, which does not. Cohen has helped guide the state through a transition from fee-for-service Medicaid to a managed care model by which the state contracts with insurance companies that are paid predetermined rates to provide health care services.
1: So this might be kind of like a, a subtle thing at first, right? But what we're talking about is she is taking uh, a program, which is the pre-expansion Medicaid within the state of North Carolina, and transition their care into something that is designed to be, you know, more efficient, more cost-saving. It's the kind of move that, like, I'm sure was kind of sold as a way to justify, well, here, if we make sure that we're going to be implementing these cost-saving organizational redesign measures like managed care, we're going to be able to expand Medicaid because then we can afford it. But what is not being said there is, well, what happens in the transition from fee-for-service to managed care? Why is managed care Even talked about as being more efficient or more affordable and easier to scale. It's because there's an amount of rationing and care that's withheld in order for managed care models to work. I mean, it is one of the most difficult. Uh, insurance schemes to navigate as a patient. I know a lot of disabled folks who are on Medicaid managed care plans, and they are the people that I know out of everyone in the United States who have to fight the hardest, who have the most restrictions on their care, the most narrow networks. And at the end of the day, a lot of what's going on here is that, you know, the money kind of gets soaked up by the insurance companies who manage these um, plans. So what you have is is essentially like a plan where you have a, a standard payer, a fee for service, right? right? Like traditional Medicare. And a managed care plan is essentially to completely eliminate that and oftentimes introduced basically kind of like almost an HMO like structure where you have like a group of doctors that's approved on this plan. You have a a group of very narrow, very tightly negotiated formularies. So the drug restrictions are really high. And then oftentimes these models work with like limits on the amount of times that you can use them. So whenever we're talking about like the most draconian Medicaid programs in the United States, like Texas, where, you know, it's like you've got counties where there's like limits on three medications max per person. Right. Those are the Medicaid managed care models. And so it's taking like a very small program that probably, you know, was serving just a very, very narrow segment of like the most dire folks in North Carolina and saying, you know what, that's too generous. Let's ratchet down the generosity a little bit to sort of propose a way that this could you know, then be made more humane by opening up to more people.
3: And let's not forget that what you're doing when you shift to a managed care model of Medicare or Medicaid, you are bringing private firms into the state and giving them uh, a lot of power Mm -hmm. to determine the state's policies. I mean, the common thing is You know, there's some effort to reform some bad thing that managed care is doing. Either, you know, it's it's incentivizing just poor treatment of patients or it's, you know, uh, bilking uh, the state in some way and like taking a lot of money off the top. Um, The once you shift to managed care, that company or series of companies has the ability to say. Uh, if you're going to try to reform us, we will make sure that people suffer even more. Like they, they then get power to disrupt healthcare. So essentially what you're doing and it's like she's not alone in terms of like Medicaid administrators who have led states in this direction, but make no mistake about what that reform does. It is pitched as a sort of neutral kind of like management or cost control or even sometimes at the most laughable quality improvement scheme, which is just just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the point is it is essentially giving private firms and that's why, you know, it's such a lucrative market is like not only only do you have a guaranteed stream of profits, you get a kind of structural power within government that very few sorts of firms really enjoy in quite the same way.
2: Yeah. And to all of these points, I think the last thing that I would just add is that one interesting, relatively timely piece of information that we have to bring up here actually is that there is a big report going around from the Office of Inspector General about medicaid and managed care and one of the things that is sort of found in it i'll just uh, read from the new york times summary of one of the findings of the report actually um quote medicaid managed care companies were found to have denied one of eight treatment requests like one out of eight treatment requests in 2019 roughly two times the rate of those under medicare advantage so, you know, Medicare Advantage is this whole system that we point to as a problem all the time. So this is sort of even worse in terms of denials, It's it appears, mm-hmm. at least. And then they continue, quote, unlike with Medicare, if an insurer refuses to authorize a treatment, patients are not automatically provided with an outside medical opinion as part of their appeal. They are entitled to a state hearing. And so I'm just saying, you know, if this is essentially this is sort of her big claim to fame pre-pandemic right before becoming the face of North Carolina's pandemic response this isn't something exactly that I would be celebrating the other thing that we have to address though is again we've been talking about this like idea that she has this bipartisan record right that she's sort of known for being able to speak to republicans to make compromises with them and I haven't really seen anyone else talking about this, but I think one of the few things that I've found that really does seem like a signal of what this actually meant in practice is something that does raise perhaps the biggest red flag for me of all of this, which is I'm just going to read from this thing from 2018. This is from uh, the publication Inside CMS, March 8th, 2018. This was headlined. North Carolina health secretary open to compromise on Medicaid work requirements. Um, <laughs> and
3: and let's let's uh,
2: please, please remind us of the date there.
3: The date I'm going to suggest will be very important. Uh, March 8th, 2018. OK, mm-hmm. that's that's good. I just okay. We're going to keep that in mind for later.
2: Keep that in mind for a second. OK, so um, I'll just I'll read like a little chunk of it. North Carolina's top health official said Wednesday, March 7th, that she opposes work requirements in Medicaid, but is open to including them in the state's Mm. Medicaid program if they were paired with Medicaid expansion. The state has already submitted an 1115 waiver request to institute both policies, but state legislation to move expansion forward has not passed. Quote, requiring work in order to have health care seems a little backward, unquote. Mandy Cohen, the state's secretary of health and human services, told insurance industry representatives at a (laughs) conference in Washington hosted by America's health insurance plans. Cohen indicated, however that she and Governor Roy Cooper are willing to consider work requirements as part of a compromise with the state's Republican-controlled legislature to adopt Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Quote, the governor and I have been willing to ask CMS the question, if the General Assembly were to expand Medicaid, could we do work requirements, Cohen said.
3: And keep in mind, okay, so the, the this is a, a really amazing uh, for a variety of reasons. So, like, the keep in mind this is under... To the Trump administration, so obviously the answer that CMS is going to provide is, hell yes, <laughs> uh, you can do worker for Gore. Please, like we'll roll out the red carpet. But the, like I, I think the history here is important, right? So like under the Obama administration, you had like, I think four or five states propose doing Medicaid expansion with work requirements. That was going to be like the price of admission. CMS under Obama said no to every single one of them. Um, and it's important to think about the reason why it said no. It wasn't just because the Obama, the administration at the time was, was bending over backwards to try to get states to expand. And so they actually did allow uh, four or five states to, to do these waivers that actually, you know, did like carve out certain services and not not good things. Right. Um, but the work requirements, it was like that was a bridge too far. Um, even though they were willing to like bend over backwards and do everything. And I think one of the big reasons why came to uh, clarity, I think, in 2018, 19, the exact time where she is pitching this. And the reason it came to clearly exactly why they were doing this is that. Okay, let's think about the like the most generous scenario. I'm sure what she was thinking about maybe uh, is like, well, we've got a Democratic governor now and like we'll implement them, quote unquote, but (laughs) it'll be really weak. And like it's not going to be, you know, Texas. Right. Or it's not going to be like how Arkansas would do it. All of these people aren't going to get thrown off, which is. Let let me put it this way, as a little too clever by half to think that the legislature <laughs> isn't going to try to jam that down your throat. But that's actually not the point, which is it doesn't matter if you have, you know, Fiorello LaGuardia as, <laughs> you know, like as governor. The the point is that when you open the door and CMS issues a letter that says, OK, you can do work requirements, especially at the you know, in 2018, 19, where the huge legal challenge to work requirements that was filtering through the federal courts was the Medicaid statute bars this. This is illegal. You can't Mm -hmm. actually require people to work. It doesn't matter if it's expansion population or the old traditional population. You cannot require people to work in order to get Medicaid benefits. It is against the law. And so here is the master grand political strategist, Mandy Cohen... (laughs) saying Mm -hmm. like you know all we want is this narrow sliver you know this little thing ignoring entirely that when that happens um it utterly utterly changes the game and and like once it's blessed like if a court blesses it which by the way you're setting it up to do because it'll be challenged and then the idea is like if you get what you really want the court will bless it then it's like oh then it's not just the 1115 the expansion population is going to apply it's going to apply to everybody and it's and you know, by the way, that is a huge change in the law that you are asking, you know, unelected uh, judges to make because it helps advance your fucking career. Like that is the thing, like that is the overriding uh, conclusion that one can draw is that, that to the extent that she understands the program at all, she understands it through the lens of her. The advancement, like the very narrow advancement of her uh, career like that yeah. is the only thing that it is evident that she is committed to whatsoever in this mm-hmm. entire sort of like you know investigation. You know this is your life, like that. The fact that in 2018, right when these legal challenges to Medicaid work requirements were about to get rolling, this is the analysis that she made. Like it's it'd be worth it to do this, even though it might have huge ramifications on millions of covered lives across the country. You know, I we need this. You know now. Oh, who's the we? Me. Primarily.
1: (laughs) Well, I would say, you know, she also has really worked hard to punish the poor. When you combined the shift of Medicaid to managed care with the way she puts, you know, the option of, well, she doesn't support it. She doesn't like it, but she's open to discussing um, work requirements. Also paints a very clear picture that she's willing to throw her state's most vulnerable residents under the bus as oh, no. health secretary to build her brand and her career.
2: Right. And now look, you know, Cohen's going or co- not going. Cohen is now the director of the CDC, you know, not the head of CMS, not the head of Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Like if she was going to be the head of CMS, you know, this kind of willingness to quote-unquote compromise would be completely unacceptable and probably would have been the subject of a lot of political discussion over the last couple of weeks, right? But obviously I think she's, you know, been able to skirt by like no one's gonna no one's gonna flag this and say like, oh, the CDC director can't be someone who's like open to work requirements or whatever. But I think it's very important to contextualize again to me, because like to me, especially this thing of like what Phil's saying in terms of it being, I mean, the first thing like, when I, when I found this clipping, basically, and I sent a screenshot of it to Phil, this was like a week ago or something, the first thing Phil said was like, that is wild to have that position in 2018. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's true. And that, to me, I think, you know, I completely agree with this assessment that, you know, both of you are giving. To me, this what this shows me is that this is someone uh, kind of with, no scruples i guess or willing None. either with like or if she has scruples like she's completely willing to abandon them and the reason i feel especially confident in saying that is i i dug a little deeper it was important to me that this wasn't just sort of a one-off right like i obviously i find this thing of her saying this in 2018 eminently objectionable like and obviously disqualifying uh generally speaking but imagine my surprise when then i found a clip of her saying almost the same fucking thing uh four years later last year in 2022 um so this is going to be our uh, first clip for this okay. show i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm throw preparing this in
1: myself mentally and physically for this
2: uh but of
3: course a lot of the dialogue in state expansion has been around adding work requirements mm-hmm. to Medicaid expansion.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Do you have any thoughts on that?
4: This is a healthcare program, right? This is trying to get folks healthy, like philosophically. But OK, let's leave and leave the philosophy of that aside and just go to the practicality of like I said, I want government to be efficient we already know folks income, that means they have income, that means they're working. And so what we've seen in the other states that have tried to do some of these implementation of work requirements is that it is so expensive to actually do to set up the uh, the infrastructure to get everyone to report their, their work, you spend more on that than than the few people who aren't working in in the system. It's like a it it just it doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, like if that's what it takes to help (laughs) everyone say, I I feel comfortable with this. Mm. You know, I am willing to have that conversation. I don't love it. I, I don't I don't think that's where we should go. I think it's a misallocation of resources. And everyone wants us to spend our dollars wisely. But if that's what it takes, you know, both the governor and I have said that, you know, we're willing to talk about what that could look like. Now, I I can't have folks who are caring for dependent children subject to the same kinds of work requirements. There are folks who are suffering from the opioid crisis, right? At some point, I need to get folks real treatment. And then, you know, the the expectation is, of course, they want to go back to work. These are folks who want to work. And so, how do we get them healthy enough to be able to work and and hold a job? But, like I said, I'm open to understanding what that solution is looking like. You know, I know that the House uh, Republicans uh, introduced legislation that that looked at cover, covering everyone with a work requirement. You know, not my favorite, but th- this is the reality of where we are. And I think that I look forward to continuing that. I think that was a legitimate place to start our dialogue. Oh. I hope we can move forward from that. And like I said, if that's what it will take to make everyone feel comfortable that, that these folks are working, even though we, we know they are, but if we have to do it, we'll have to do it. <sighs> I
1: hate her i fucking hate is, her already
3: no but this is a, this is i mean a legitimate I, place
1: to start the question
3: i love i i, oh, I, like I
1: sorry see i can't love even talk
3: <laughs> the, the clarity that this provides because this is a very particular kind of uh of person which is Slippery, the you know yeah. the um the person who thinks they're playing 12-dimensional chess <laughs> but the person that they're playing it with is like Kasparov. Like, you know, they're like, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, child. Like this is, you know, it's like, yeah, this I'm willing to like begin a discussion here. Okay. Um, I'm sure that what you think about that is like, well, I have these like red lines and, you know, we're going to sort of vigorously police them and we'll have, as if what you're doing isn't like, oh, like as if this isn't how the door is opened to all historically mm-hmm. to the, to the mm-hmm. elimination uh, you know, you l- look at, look at how the, the introduction of something like TANF uh, gets started and, and welfare, you know, is, is essentially eliminated in the United States. Like it starts with these like little modest experiments and, they work really well or, you know, they can be said to work like people just like fabricate evidence that they're working mm-hmm. well. And um, and then, you know, and everyone's like, well, it's interesting. It's a puzzling sort of interesting idea. And it's like, OK, all right. That's that. You know, the, all of these like little drops of water. And so it's like and it's and it is the road to hell is paved with with this this particular version of pragmatism (laughs) right or what passes for pragmatism these people these people would know pragmatism if it hit them in you know in the face uh but uh but yeah this is i mean again yeah this is a great way of advance i think it's a great way of advancing your uh to really advance the lesson of this is to really advance your career there can be no red lines for you. Everything is on the table.
1: Everything has to be on the table. Right. And I think that that what really bothers me is her willingness to not just say like, oh, I'm open to it, but to to literally say things like this is a legitimate starting point for this discussion. This is. A, yeah,
2: seriously. This is
1: a thing that I don't like, but it's still legitimate and valid to have on the table. And I'm going to give my respect and deference to the fucking ghouls who are salivating over work requirements and the people who are under the work requirement themselves, theoretically. Right. Like she has no compassion for that. Where's the you know, where's the legitimacy for their right to just have care without being surveilled, supervised and subject to administrative burdens and work requirements, even if it just does a very small portion of the population? What pleasing 10 Republicans is more important than Not punishing 1,500 poor people? Like, who cares? This is the kind of calculus you do not want someone who makes these kinds of judgments in a role, especially in a role during a pandemic, managing risk and, and rationing and allocation and meeting needs like, you know, policy equity in terms of recommendations and guidelines. I mean, how is this woman going to approach the language around recommendations for immunocompromised people? Right. Like, what does this make you think about how she's going to balance priorities and who she's going to like have in mind when she's making compromises? Like, it's only her, you know, and it's the image of the CDC, you know, insofar as that is what she needs to to continue to sort of build her resume.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's why I kind of left that as a long clip, too, because it, I think the whole arc of it is really interesting because you get this. I mean, when I first heard it, too, you know, I, I saw this thing. I knew she was going to be talking about work requirements in it. And I'm like, okay, great. I, you know, hope that by... You know, but four years later, by 2022, she's going to go in there and say, like, oh, yeah, no, obviously we can't do work requirements under any circumstances. Right. And then she starts her answer by saying the thing so many people say that is a good reason to then say, you know, and I oppose work requirements, which is why would you do that? It just adds all of this administrative glut and it costs more to police the work requirement anyway, then you're going to quote unquote save in basically rationing care away from these people. Right. Mm -hmm. And then she pivots to, but if that's what makes everyone feel comfortable, makes who feel, you know what I mean? Insurance
1: companies. She's just, she's just like regurgitating the selling points for both of these like policies without question. And you know, these are things that we've known for decades now are harmful Right. Like when you when she sells managed care, even in the later in this interview, she talks about, oh, when I was health secretary of North Carolina, you know, there (laughs) I was spending all this money and I wasn't actually improving people's health. So I realized like I needed to address the social determinants. And this is the classic selling point of managed care. Managed care models were the result of a, a payer revolt where payers really kind of demanded out of the fee for service uh, industry, and they this this model exploded, and and managed care was the dominant model of healthcare in the United States by the mid 1990s. Like we have known that managed care for decades was nothing about reducing costs. All it is is rationing risk-managed denial of care You know, under the banner of evidence-based medicine. And it's money in, in insurance pockets, and it's care withheld from patients. And it doesn't do shit in terms of efficiency. It doesn't improve the social determinants of health, as insurance companies claim. And she's willing to go out there, you know, decades into, you know, the very obvious problems with managed care and hold water for it and chill for it and advocate for it. And she's doing the same thing for work requirements here, where it's like we talk about work requirements all the time on this show. The problems with work requirements in general is a sort of political way of, um, you know, selling a program like this is explicitly against the point of the program, right? Like the idea of like providing poor people care and providing it with that kind of surveillance and restrictions in mind are two things that, you know, we pretend like are necessary counterparts. So in holding the water for this argument, in insisting, you know, on on (laughs) presenting uh, work requirements is a legitimate or reasonable starting point for some sort of across the aisle like health policy jamboree or whatever the fuck. Like all she's really doing is continuing to maintain the status quo and maintain a health system in the United States. It's not only not a fucking system, but that's one that's designed to just extract from and punish the most vulnerable and the most impoverished people who, you know, are in the position to even use it and abandon everyone else and part of what's going on ultimately is that she is popular with republicans because she is okay with a lot of the ideas that they're okay with and she's willing to sit there right like she's not doing anything she's there's no special magic to mandy cohen's third way across the aisle there's no technique to it she literally whether she agrees with them or not she gives legitimacy and room to their ideas don't wonder why republicans like her that's not a good sign you know what i mean this is not this is not how you build trust right like the person who's supposed to build trust with the cdc is someone who repeats insurance company lies about managed care you know in the year 2017 who repeats lies about you know work requirements in the year 2022 right like this is the person who's gonna build trust the person who Is a mouthpiece for for private insurance through her public speaking, basically. I
2: mean, like if you, you know, there's a lot of ways to build trust and it depends on with whom you're trying to build trust. So if you're trying to build trust among (laughs) Republicans that you're not going to do very much about the pandemic anymore, then I mean, it seems like she's a good pick. With that in mind, let's um, move on to her time still in North Carolina as the health secretary of the state but the time for which she was the face of their pandemic response you know like so many things with this overall trajectory that we're looking at you know we're not going to be able to touch on everything but i'm trying to distill a couple of just like quick points to make sure that you get an idea of you know who she is and what perspective she's coming from and some of the main uh kind of you know things we might take issue with or things that might be uh sort of red flags for us to keep aware of um and to sort of summarize, I suppose, you know, there's a lot of stuff. If you look at pretty much any article about her coming in the CDC director, they'll talk about her time as the head of like the, you know, the face of North Carolina's pandemic response. They'll talk about the uh, 150 or more um, press conferences that she gave during uh, her time doing that in those two years 2020 and 2021 she left by the end of 2021 which um for long time listeners may be a first red flag that you can think about in terms of the timing for when she decided it was a good time to leave the job but i digress Mm. um in any case looking into her time uh doing this this is one place where you can just, again, casually glancing at it. You can see that she has that Jeff Science uh, management consultant flair to her that I was talking about earlier. Um, the North Carolina pandemic response was filled with all sorts of cutesy turns of phrase and neologisms. Um, for example, when North Carolina began to drop or dismantle their stay at home orders, um, they replaced it with a safer at home order. Um, which I do understand was also language used in a couple of other states. I think Wisconsin was one of them. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right? Safer. So, yeah. safer at home. But, um, you know, Cohen also had a thing that she said all the time, um, that is something that, uh, people grew to, you know, really know her for actually, which is, um, instructing people to practice the three W's wear weight and wash, uh, meaning wear a cloth face covering if you will be with other people. I'm reading from the actual thing. Um, Our
1: recommendations. So
2: their yeah. recommendation was a cloth face covering. Wear a mask if you will be with other people. Wait six feet apart and avoid close contact. And wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds or use hand sanitizer. In any case, here's the thing really to know about Cohen's time as you know the face of the North Carolina pandemic response. Um, the main thing, I mean, to know is... North Carolina was one of the first states to walk back their stay-at-home orders. Don't just take my word for it. Uh, I'm going to play a clip from NPR from 2020. Um, And while I'll play the clip in a second, uh, just note, so this story is from June 11th, 2020, pretty early. Um, And for context, in the description of this little spot, uh, it notes, quote, North Carolina became one of the first states to reopen when it lifted several restrictions related to COVID-19 on May 8th. Um, So before you hear this clip, uh, just to reiterate, again, the date was June 11th, 2020, not 2021, not 2022. I say that because when I first heard this, uh, I got a little bit of vertigo from hearing how similar the language uh, sounded then um, in June 2020, uh, just a few months after the first you know, state reactions to COVID in the U.S. uh, came through as it does to, like, later, much later periods in the pandemic. So, uh, again, this is from June 2020 uh, from NPR's morning edition.
0: Many parts of the country are trying to get back to life as it was before the pandemic. Arizona, Florida, Oregon and North Carolina's number of cases nearly doubled in the last three weeks. All four of those states are also in the process of reopening. Just last week, North Carolina recorded its largest single-day spike since the pandemic began. Mandy Cohen is North Carolina's Secretary of Health and Human Services, and she joins me now. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Rachel. Great to be with you. So things were going well in North Carolina, and now they are not. So what happened? That's right. So we took early and aggressive action like many other states back in March to slow the spread of the virus, and we never got a first surge or a first wave, and that was really good. We, we were able to use that time to build our capacity to respond, but we, we couldn't stay locked down forever, right? And we start to reopen. We know that the virus is going to move around more. And we watch our numbers and track our trends very closely. And what we have seen, um, particularly in the last two weeks since our second phase of reopening, is that our numbers are are really, as you said, going in the wrong direction. Um, In the last week, we've had four days of more than 1,000 new cases in each one of those days. And and importantly, we are seeing our hospitalizations go up, so more people having serious illness. Now, we, Mm. we still have... Capacity in our healthcare systems, um, you know, but this is an early warning sign for us that we really need to take seriously and make sure that we don't forget that COVID nineteen is with us. I know folks are weary uh, at this point, um, but we really need to stay vigilant, particularly in our state where we never really saw that first uh, increase. So this is uh, new for us, and we need to make sure that we can respond. Well, what are the criteria for moving on with reopening? I mean, as you noted, North Carolina is in phase two, and restrictions are are set to loosen further in about two weeks. Are you worried about that? Well, we've been uh, tracking very closely four key metrics, and the governor and I report out on those metrics every week to help us make decisions, and that is why we felt like we were able to move into our first phases of reopening. We had been stable on our numbers of new cases, um, of our percent positive tests on hospitalizations, um, and And we do look at some early surveillance data. So we look at these four key trends. So they they were stable. But as as I said, as we start to reopen, which we knew, you know, we have to reignite the economy. We can't stay locked down forever. We do see uh, these trends moving in the wrong direction. (sighs)
1: See, okay.
2: We can't stay locked down forever.
1: Do you want my hunch here?
2: Which the stay at home order was um, one month. (laughs) One month.
1: (laughs) One month. Can't stay locked down forever. We're I mean, we're looking at the transition to the private market in the coming year. The next two years of Biden's presidency also coincide with the transition to the private market, COVID care, COVID therapeutics, COVID testing, COVID vaccines. No matter what the runway is on how many more months are left to free this or free that, in the next two years, we will see the full privatization of the COVID response, so to speak, right? Whether that's through the defunding of public health departments or through things like insurance companies, what they're going to cover and what they're not. What's really going to dictate what insurance companies are required to cover in the coming years, what kinds of COVID care and how much of it most importantly, how much of it people need and how often they're entitled to COVID care, that's going to be partially dictated by what the CDC guidelines around COVID are moving forward. Right. So if you put someone in the position of CDC director who doesn't understand the need to make sure that these policies don't put some sort of undue burden, then Mandy is a perfect pick. Right. She is someone who is here to really sort of put a third way spin on, I think, leading the CDC through the next couple of years, which is going to be building the trust, so to speak, of these recommendations such that, you know, the pressure on insurance companies to take over this high cost of care that has previously been on the government is not something they're so worried about in this transition, because I think It's it stands to reason that one of the things that people like Jeff Zients um, are hearing a lot from their friends on the corporate side is, you know, okay well, like you're pushing this to the private market, you're making this our problem. Right. We know the Biden administration is having all these talks with insurance companies saying, oh, we're going to speak to them. We're going to ask them very nicely to do X, Y, Z for COVID because we're not going to like, we're not going to like write down that this is a requirement. We're just going to ask the insurance companies nicely. So these lines of dialogue are open, right? And maintaining those relationships with the insurance companies and keeping them happy and keeping them involved sort of in state planning, in the construction of the state, of the health system, right? These are things that Mandy Cohen excels in. Like we have all of this evidence from her history um, and her her tenure in North Carolina, whether that's We can't stay locked down forever. Reopening after one month with clear evidence that reopening directly led to more cases and it's quickly getting out of control. But like, okay, we did it. And the point was always to move forward with no on ramps back on, just off ramps. Right. Like these are the kinds of um, sort of decisions. Right. That she (laughs) she's still willing to justify using, you know, whatever rhetoric or language is appropriate to justify them, whether that is something that she believes in or not or that she agrees with or not. Whether, you know, I think I obviously am extrapolating from like her comments on work requirements and managed care and the pandemic here to make a kind of prediction about what kind of CDC director she will be. But I don't think it's unreasonable to expect her decisions to be very favorable to private insurance companies and and sort of her leadership to be really about not just building trust with the American people or maybe not building trust with the American people at all, but building trust with, you know, the corporate actors who have a lot of control over our health system and who are just as worried as the average person about if they're going to have to foot the bill for all of these people who are going to be exposed to COVID, right? Like the insurance companies are just as worried as you and I about how much this is all going to cost for it to be privatized now that the government's not paying for it anymore. So who better to lead an agency like the CDC who's really seen as and perceived as shaping what the minimum requirements for COVID care and COVID surveillance and prevention, et cetera, are than someone who's going to take great pains to make sure these insurance executives aren't. Freaked out,
3: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's, you know, I guess another um like one one question is like why why the you know the importance of this experience, in the private sector? and like, I can't help but think that this the 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 big trendy kind of like health reforms in the sector that she was like part of and the kind of organization she ran it was like making all of these commitments to dealing with the quote unquote, like social determinants of health, but through, uh, healthcare finance, right? Uh, which I mean, to me there's a real ideological story there as well, uh, which is basically how how can we pretend that we are actually dealing with all of these, you know, uh, social and economic forces uh, that that affect whatever people's health outcomes without actually promising to or being in any way interested in, like actual meaningful social or economic reform and it's like okay well acos are going to pay for i don't know transportation or so you know what i mean like that's that also seems to me like it's it allows you to do this sort of like discursive like translation at cdc is like well you know this is actually like private uh if we're talking about private health or sorry if we're talking about public health private uh insurance companies have a really important role to play Mm -hmm. in sustaining public health like it it pulls off see Mm -hmm. even i I said private health right like it it pulls off (laughs) that that little uh you know ideological like slippage quite effectively
2: absolutely just maybe two uh quick things about this clip and then i'm going to move on to like one one uh last clip but um i want to note so obviously you know it's very interesting to see i think i said you know maybe i Uh, slipped a little bit saying one month obviously I think it's like a little bit over one month probably from you know from March whenever they uh, did the stay-at-home order in March um, then like April and then May 8th I guess it's about it's probably about just over a month that they had you know they had the stay-at-home order in place but still you know obviously hearing multiple times we can't stay locked down forever so quickly from a public health official from a state. I mean, that is the glaringest of glaring red flags. Um, But Mm -hmm. the reason that I, you know, kind of let the clip go along is also because if you listen closely, that clip includes confirmation that she was involved in the decision, right? She says the governor and I looked at the data and decided to reopen, right? We had to, you know, privilege the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, that's something I want to note. The other thing is there's something Just uh, I want to acknowledge, you know, just to be clear, in case anyone is trying to, like, fact check this or something in the future. I want to acknowledge that the very next thing that she says is uh, like after that clip is the governor and I have said we'll use all our tools. And so if we need to go back to stay at home orders, we will. Um, And yeah, she says that. But that never happened. Like, even though you hear the NPR host being like, so uh, line go up. Right is it like numbers are going up? Isn't that, um, maybe a sign that, you know, are like, are you really gonna, you know, continue to further expand the reopening and go into the next phase in the next couple of weeks? Um, and they did, right. So Mm -hmm. they, they like, they did absolutely, you know, the, the, like, we will, you know, go back to stay at home orders if we if we uh, need to, like that never happened. Right. Um, So I just, you know, want to be really clear on that. Like so many other states, as we've talked about, the reopening only ever went in one direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, again, we're not going to have time here to go into like all of the twists and turns of the North Carolina COVID response. Mostly, I mean, so much of the response is relatively similar to stuff that we saw in other states, But to that end, I just want to note one other thing I want to call out from her time as the face of North Carolina's COVID response, which is that, you know, the clip that we're talking about, that's all pre-vaccine, obviously in 2021, that last year that she is, uh, in that position in 2021, I do want to note that there is definitely a shift that they take in their overall trajectory and their overall response. You know, some listeners may recall our episode um, how liberals killed masking, um, which is largely about the complete mess. The Biden administration made through its masking policies in 2021. In that episode, one of the things we raise is that when the CDC issued its guidance on May 13th, 2021, that vaccinated people were no longer required or recommended to wear masks indoors or outdoors. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, we we talked about how many states, many states were soon to have to either renew their masking guidance or like decide what to do about it. Um, And that like many states let that guidance just totally drop as a result of the CDC's actions uh, or citing often the CDC's comments about uh, about its new masking recommendations. Um, North Carolina was one of those states. I just want to just want to flag that uh, really heavily. One day after after the CDC made its uh, twenty twenty like spring twenty twenty one change on May fourteenth twenty twenty one is when the North Carolina mask mandate expired and and it never came back. It's one of those states for whom or for for which the mask mandate never came back. So just you know noting that and to an extent I think that is reflected in. A lot of the messaging 2021 and onward is very focused, uh, at least in the North Carolina uh, like state response, is very focused on basically vaccine only, not exclusively, but for the most part, in a way that, how to put it? I'm, I'm trying to figure out, I suppose, how to set up the next thing that you're about to hear, which is also from May, which is uh, video statement that Mandy Cohen gives uh, on the state of the pandemic called Secretary Cohen on hope for the future. And I'm going to play this clip. And I'm just going to say it now, what this reads to me as and we can discuss it. But what this reads to me as is a demonstration of exactly the kind of thing that I am a bit more than a bit concerned about with mandy cohen's tenure as cdc director going forward which is seemingly uh extreme party loyalty to a fault Mm -hmm. paired with really being specifically able to kind of hit the lines if you will so uh so here's um here's this
4: So I am very hopeful about where we are as we sit here in May of 2021. And it's because we have the tools to beat back this pandemic now. And we have the tools for everybody, meaning that we have vaccines available, for everyone who wants it. Um, And we wanna make sure folks know that the vaccine supply is there. They are safe, they're effective, and they're free. Um, So make sure you're getting your vaccine today. I know it is the way that we are gonna turn the corner on this pandemic, um, and that makes me hopeful for the future. We know we have a lot of work to do to think about ongoing recovery from this, uh, this crisis, but the fact that we have pulled together as a state and as a community, makes me hopeful that we are going to build back better
1: and we're going to be stronger than ever.
2: The fact that she said build back better.
1: She's on it. Perfect. We have the tools, all the tools we need for everybody.
2: Yeah. Anyway.
1: (sighs) I mean, I think, you know, as as we move into the the sort of next stage of uh, the pandemic, obviously covering it is going to be increasingly difficult, but I think... You know, what's clear about just the work that we've done getting ready to record this episode on on Mandy's, you know, the last 10 years of Mandy's career, I think it's going to be really kind of difficult to uh, work with some of the sort of statements we're going to be getting with her because she very clearly, you know, checks all of the boxes for like media training that Rochelle Walensky did not. You know, I don't think we're gonna be able to expect um slips like masking is the scarlet letter of the pandemic, or, <laughs> you know, it's encouraging news that all the people who are dying of breakthrough deaths are um, you know, people with more than one pre-existing condition or whatever, you know, more risk factors. But I do think, you know, to to people who are paying close attention, right? And it's going to be very important uh, to try and figure out how to communicate this broadly moving forward. As you can tell, Mandy may not be saying masks are the scarlet letter of the pandemic, but she sure as fuck thinks it, right? And it's really important to keep in mind moving forward that the new director of the CDC is a fucking smooth operator who hits her cues and memorizes her lines and who is not gonna fucking piss off Aetna CVS or you know, Molina or United Healthcare Group or whatever the fuck Blue Cross Blue Shield or Anthem is called now, you know, this is going to be someone who can work across the aisle in multiple ways and who is gonna sell out the COVID response, you know, the the sort of CDC framework that she is told to sell out to the public. And and I think not, I think we could be pretty clear. That she's not going to be leading with some impeccable moral compass here with, you know, a long track record of, of making decisions based on her own beliefs and her own lines in the sand about what she thinks is right and not. She's demonstrated very clearly that she doesn't make decisions based on her own beliefs about what's right and what could contribute to health equity. Right. So it's like what she believes about the world and about politics and about health almost doesn't matter because, you know, what she's willing to cop to and compromise for, hold water for or you know, declare legitimacy too in the course of all sorts of other arrangements throughout her career that I think you can really expect the same sort of deference to private actors and to industry, you know, in her actions in this role as well.
3: That's a really good point.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that's that's similar to my takeaway, too. This is someone who's um, a hired gun who, you know, this is why I was saying, I think, it makes it like she's very conversant in all of these things, she's extremely fluent in talking about the social determinants of health, even if sometimes, you know, the way that she talks about them obviously is, you know, as Phil was highlighting earlier, is all about this like, uh, basically is about, you know, commercial determinants of health or is about how can we solve the social determinants of health through uh, private intervention. Or whatever. Um, how can the how can private industry <laughs> improve health outcomes? I mean, literally, I have I neglected to mention this earlier, but literally, the um, the pre pandemic North Carolina moved to Medicaid managed care. Her sort of tagline, her like cutesy tagline for that was buying health for North Carolina. <sighs> so that's what we can expect. Yeah. And the thing, you know, there's uh, there's only so much that we can you know, even get into about this just other than, you know, we can point to here is someone who is, again, smooth operator, hired gun, who is willing to either compromise on their principles or perhaps has few or none. But I think, um, you know, my main takeaway for this is at least in the short term, for the most part, she's, you know, not been super right, right out front of uh, the media very much, although she is making a big point to post a lot on Twitter about running around the CDC maskless, trying to meet everybody, which I find um, kind of grotesque in its own right. Um, yeah. Typhoid Mandy over here, but like the, but <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but don't cut
1: it, please leave it in.
2: <laughs> but um, to the extent that she has, you know, started to speak to media or speak to the public in general. You know, the question has so much been posed to her, like, how are you going to restore trust? How are you going to improve communication from the CDC? How are you going to improve the CDC? And that is, you know, not that that's just like taking the bait. Basically, that is the bait that they're putting out. That's the idea. That's what you're supposed. That's like what you're supposed to be thinking is the question to ask of Mandy. That's not the question, though. If I was in a position, I'd I'd say to be, you know, asking her questions directly or to be demanding things of her directly. I mean, I guess I'm in a position now to be demanding things of her publicly, at least in the form of like speaking here in this form, you know, the thing that comes immediately to mind is I don't give a fuck about whatever it is that you mean by, you know, quote unquote trust. What I give a fuck about is what are you going to do to undo some of the damage that happened under your predecessor? are you going to do anything that puts you in friction with the Biden administration as a whole? Because I don't fucking see it right now. I don't trust. (laughs) Ironically, (laughs) I do not trust that that is part of the prerogative, but it's like, but this stuff is important, right? I mean, we are in a position right now where like, there are some very big, very detrimental things happening. We have seen, the first big company that operates in multiple states say that they're going to ban their employees from wearing masks in and out without right? a doctor's note.
1: Yeah.
2: Um wearing ma- right. We don't want to get their sued employees from wearing <laughs> masks unless they have a doctor's note. But even that, you know, still it's a it, it, it's, ban. It's fucked up. It's, it's a, a mask yeah, ban. Banning the majority of their employees functionally from wearing masks. We've seen uh health systems and healthcare settings dropping mask mandates something that the CDC still could very much intervene in, and we've also seen even things like since the end of the public health emergency, uh, you know, like if you look at HHS, right? If you look at the Health and Human Services, if you look at their uh, advisories on COVID, you know, this thing went around a lot uh, the other week that was like HHS tweeting out, for example, the more often you get COVID, the higher your risk of complications, you know, like showing there are compounding risks to subsequent COVID infections, right? You know, if you contrast that with just like, what was it in January, HHS had that whole ad campaign that was like, you beat COVID once, get ready for a rematch. You know what I mean? Like, we have an increasing acknowledgement and understanding of all of these problems. And so far, the first couple things that we've seen from Mandy Cohen in this position, the first, you know, couple weeks of her tenure really does come off like. I'm just not even gonna talk about it you know what I mean just comes off like no intervention is gonna be made here not gonna work to fix any of the damage done just I'm here to be a nice happy face right so that you forget about the yeah, CDC and that's and
3: that's mm-hmm. and that's like
2: you know that's a huge function
3: and in and, and many ways perhaps even not even thought of function of uh, necessarily see your position in that way but that's it ends up being what you're doing Uh, in government.
1: Yeah, I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. You'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes Pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we will catch you later in the week in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
3: Friends, please offer a warm Guilford welcome to our invited speaker, Dr. Mandy Cohen.
4: So today, with the sunsetting officially of the COVID state of emergency, I thought it would be a time to look back and reflect, what did we learn? I know these are gonna be lessons learned in crisis, but they're also universal lessons that you can apply right now to your personal life and to the professional careers ahead of you. And what I'll focus on is trust. How did I survive all those press conferences? What can be learned from this dumpster fire of a time? All right, the central learning for me is about the importance of trust. Trust is the foundation of all relationships and I truly believe change happens at the pace of trust. Change happens at the pace of trust. And if you want to make change in this world, and I know you do, whatever that change may be, whether it's making the world safer or more just, more equitable, more beautiful, more resilient or healthier, you're going to need to think intentionally about trust. The building of trust requires intentionality. As I said, it requires a plan. If you told your parents you were at a movie would you, and you'd be back at 11, did that in fact happen? When they activated your phone locator, were you in that movie theater at 9.30 at night, in fact, watching a movie? Did you indeed walk back in the door before 11? Same thing in the COVID pandemic. Remember, trust is not a one-way street. Trust is a reciprocal relationship. When you trust others, they are more likely to trust you in return. And when you are trustworthy, you inspire others to be trustworthy as well. And before I close today, I wanna touch on one more aspect of trust, and that's really for all of us. That is trust is a critical foundation for a healthy society. Trust in institutions such as government or media or business has been eroding in recent years. This lack of trust has led to polarization, to division, and it's made it hard to solve important issues facing the world. Graduates, as you move forward in your lives, I encourage you to think about how you can also contribute to rebuilding trust in institutions and creating a more trusting and united society.